to Shot Reverse Shot. I'm Matt Risby. Hello. And uh, joining me as always is Ed Davis. How are you going? Yeah, doing very, very well. Yeah, that's good to hear. One day I'm going to say, how are you doing? And you'll be like, oh God, it's just, yeah. And then the whole episode will be dragged down by your kind of, uh, your, your melancholy, but not today, <laughs> which is nice to hear. We're talking today about trilogies. Like last week we talked uh, about Richard Linklater and we talked about his crowning achievement being the Before Trilogy and it's a kind of a rare example of uh, a trilogy in which all three films in the trilogy are really good. And uh, it's all too rare because that doesn't happen very often. There's quite a lot of trilogies um, and there's, you know, more to come because um, people keep making them. And they still seem to think that three, the magic number for films, but it so rarely is, Ed. Yeah, I think in, in terms of thinking about perfect trilogies, I think it's it's even rarer to get ones where they're kind of narratively kind of consistent. You know, I think if you think of the really great trilogies in, you know, the whole of cinema, you'd look at something like uh, Kieslowski's The Three Colours trilogy, where they're three separate stories and they kind of overlap a little bit in the third one. But mm. or but in general, it's, you know, they're three separate films, each built on a theme, and that's kind of what allows them to be so so kind of perfect the fact that they don't have to kind of pick up the the, the threads of the previous one and, and build on the story that people are familiar with they can just be their own thing whereas i think a lot a lot of problems with those with uh kind of stories that are telling a longer sort of narrative is that they have to keep track of everything that's happened before and meet the kind of narrative expectations of the previous films mm. i always kind of get a sense of dread when a film is successful and then the uh, the um, director is interviewed or the creator is interviewed afterwards, and they're like, "Well, I originally envisaged it as the first part of a trilogy." Mm. And I think I always think, "No, you fucking didn't." <laughs> I reckon you had like uh, you had like a story that was maybe a bit too long, and there's some left over, which is which is my own personal theory as to why um, trilogies aren't great. Like, and that's mainly because the first film is so kind of you know all, everything going into it. You're not playing the long game, and you're not thinking, "Oh, I want to make." Uh, three films here um then you get successful and you get to ask to do a second film and then you're like well actually there was some stuff i didn't fit into the first film that you know is perhaps i could you know pull an idea out of it and there's still that kind of like uh, residual heat coming from that first film but by the third film you've got to actually uh come up with something <laughs> uh because you've run out of material you've run out of uh kind of uh starting off points and bits that perhaps were good but not quite good enough to make it into the other films and you kind of find yourself running out with ideas that's that's the exact i've just described the story of what happened with godfather one two three because <laughs> obviously the, the film godfather was made and then obviously they meant the second film they made out bits of the book that were left out that went back to you know back to uh, uh italy and and the kind of the, the flashback stuff robert de niro and then by the time they're like well actually that's all the material used but let's make a third film, let's come up with something completely new. And, well, that's what happened, Godfather 3. Yeah, I think you can also see that in, in a, a rare example of a, of a great trilogy, which did pretty much exactly the same thing, is um, Toy Story. Because if you kind of look into the backstory of the first Toy Story, there were a lot of ideas in there that 
they never got to use particularly the idea of uh a lot of the imagery particularly the imagery in the second film where woody has a nightmare and he's kind of being dropped into a into a, a bin by andy and he kind of like falls through and just keeps falling endlessly um which is kind of a terrifying image for a kid's film um was an idea that was originally pitched by Joss Whedon when he was uh, helping to rewrite Toy Story, which, um, you know, they, they just didn't have time for. And then that kind of became the central idea of the second one. I think that you're right in that the, the first films, you know, people cut so much material that they just can't fit in. And then they, you know, the obviously the kind of ideas that uh, uh, they can't quite make work will then, uh, just kind of re-emerge in some form. I think you can also see that in, uh, I think, in Temple of Doom has a similar thing where the whole uh, minecart chase thing was originally something they wanted to fit into Raiders and then they just couldn't do it. And then it's far and away the best part of Temple of Doom. Mm. Yeah, it's um, uh, Jurassic Park trilogy as well. Um uh, soon to become a quadrilogy or tetralogy, whichever way you want to say it, kind of mathematically correctly or not. Um, uh, the Jurassic Park trilogy, if you've ever read the Jurassic Park book, I mean, it's obviously quite a sprawling book and there's a lot going on there, but like basically all elements of all of the first book's uh, uh, kind of story and stuff appear in Lost World and also right up to kind of uh, Jurassic Park 3. Um, like including like the kind of the big aviary with the the pteranodons in it, and and that's in the first book. But obviously, it's a sequence that would have been too expensive to film, and the riverboat sequence has moved to like the third film as well. It's just like it's it's the third film always feels like the dumping ground for for remnants of ideas and and kind of uh, yeah, kind of lazy uh, writing and storytelling. I also think that in the cases of trilogies that are driven by a single voice in or a single director. I think the second the the pattern seems to be that the first one you establish the characters and you establish the world and you kind of you get people on board with the idea. So for a good example of this is like the first Spider-Man film where it's all the origin story it has to you know establish who Peter Parker is it has to give him his first kind of real challenge. Then the second film you're mm-hmm. freed of the need to do any backstory. You can just tell a story that's self-contained, but you also have the you know, assumingly the first one was a success. You have the freedom to do kind of be to do what you want and to be kind of bigger and bolder. And then when you get to the third film, it's like, where do you go from here? Because you've already done the origin story. You've already been kind of got bigger, so you can only get even bigger and more sprawling. And that's the point at which it kind it, the the wheels seem to come off. Is just when you you get so big that you can't really kind of keep the whole thing under control. Hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, especially if it's a film that doesn't have an end, mm. uh, like like the Spider Man story is ongoing. They weren't going to end Spider Man with, with the Spider Man three. They weren't going to have him like retire or die or something. <laughs> um, and like, um, yeah, so it's kind of that's uh, kind of makes sense. There must have been like, well, we did the last one and just put more villains in it. That that will be fine. I'm sure no one will have a problem with that. Yeah, and you can see that with the Nolan Batman films as well, where. The first one's a pretty straightforward take on the Batman uh, story. The second one, he can explore themes of chaos and anarchy and control. And, you know, there's a whole political subtext to it. That's that's kind of interesting that you probably couldn't get away with in the 
you know, first film in a revamped franchise. And then the third film, he tries to do all of those things again. He tries to have a political undercurrent. He tries to have, you know, he does add in more villains and it just gets, and it just gets kind of completely lost in the kind of the, 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 the big sprawling nature of the whole thing. Mm. Uh, an, an example of where a kind of a trilogy actually kind of doesn't follow that is is the Iron Man films. Mm. Um, the first film kind of laid the groundwork, started the origin story, and did a really good job. Of, you know, really entertaining film, very concise, very kind of punchy. And then the second film was just really rushed out, um, probably to kind of meet some kind of target deadline for this expanded universe nonsense. Um, and it's kind of flat and a mess and just not very good. And then it seems they've kind of brought a new director on for number three with different ideas and a different feel, and that kind of recovered it. Yeah, and and that one, again, is uh, an example, even though Iron Man 3 ends with like 100 Iron Man suits flying into battle and exploding. uh, For the most part, it's a much more small-scale and focused film. Robert Downey Jr. spends most of it outside of the Iron Man suit, so it's more really about him. Uh, going up and kind of rediscovering his humanity and what makes him special apart from his suit. So it feels like a much smaller film than the second one, even though my guess is it probably cost an awful lot more just because mm. of Robert Downey Jr.'s salary. But it feel, it's, it's a rare example of a franchise kind of really narrowing focus uh, rather than getting exponentially bigger with each film. Um. We'll talk a little bit about trilogies that people might think are perfect, but they actually aren't. <laughs> and there's there's three examples I've got here. Um, and you can tell me if you agree with me or not. Um, first one I'm going to talk about is the, the Indiana Jones trilogy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I, I call it a trilogy because let's just not talk about the fourth one. Um, I think Raiders of the Lost Ark is fantastic. Yeah. I think Temple of Doom is really racist yes. uh, and really, really, really bad. Uh, and like, it's really dark, and it's just there's some shit in there that probably shouldn't be in uh, a film that kids might watch, like a statue with a necklace made of human arms. Um, it's kind of some messed up shit, um, and also the obviously offensive kind of like racial attitudes uh, in there. Probably to children, that's way more damaging to children than anything else. Mm. And then um, I'm one of the rare people. I think the Last Crusade, Crusade is really shit. Uh, I wouldn't say it's shit, but I definitely don't think it is kind of the redemptive final act that a lot of people see it as in terms of the uh, the overall arc of that trilogy. I think a lot of people see it as kind of like, oh, you know, they, they drop the ball a bit with the second film and then they really, you know, kind of win it back with the third film. Uh, and I don't think it's like that. You know, I think the, the Indiana Jones trilogy is very much one great film, one undeniably great action film, kind of a almost platonic ideal of what a blockbuster should be mm-hmm. second film great some great sequences a lot of bad attitudes <laughs> a lot of bad stuff underneath the surface uh and third film just kind of like a dopey goofy uh you know buddy movie which uh never really has some kind of nice moments but never really kind of hangs together or has the same sort of drive or verve as the other ones because you know you you make you put indiana jones in a position in which he can't really be all that confident because he's got his dad hanging around Mm. and i think that's what i take issue with is that like it's it's so kind of broadly goofy um that it kind of becomes a different feeling film it doesn't feel like an adventure film anymore it kind of feels like a family comedy 
Mm. And it, I kind of, when you've got Nazis in it and like uh, traps and people getting their heads cut off and shit like that. And a cameo from Hitler. And a cameo from Hitler. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong, I love the opening. That's great. Mm. Like with River Phoenix and stuff, that's uh, really cool. But like, you know, I get the idea that I still don't really understand uh, Sean Connery as 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 uh, as as the dad. Like, I, it's just the worst stunt casting ever. It's like, well, who we need an actor to play um, uh, Harrison Ford's dad. Well, should we, you know, pick an actor that's going to be really good for the role that will maybe add something to the? No, let's just put James Bond as J- as uh, as Indiana Jones's dad, and you know, just hopefully that won't kind of completely smother any kind of joy that's in this film but it does it completely does yeah i think that it is most interesting in kind of a metatextual way or an intertextual way in the you know the whole thing with indiana jones was they wanted to create a a kind of american james bond and a kind of an answer to it someone who doesn't have fancy gadgets who just gets by on kind of wit and kind of his own kind of nerve and then casting James Bond as his dad is kind of interesting because you think, oh, I guess he is kind of the idea that people always tried to grow up the op- to be the opposite of their fathers or whatever. That kind of plays into that idea nicely. Mm. But yeah, it, it does not something that makes the film itself all that interesting. I think the, the casting, you can really kind of see that that mindset, which is like, we need an older actor. Oh, Sean Connery's just won an Oscar. He'll do. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It's not one that I particularly enjoy, but now that's probably not a trilogy anymore because of the the, the fourth film. But which know, I had forgotten existed because when you were thinking of trilogies, that was one of the first one that I thought of. It's like, oh yeah, Indiana Jones. <laughs> yeah, like, oh yeah, there was a fourth film. <laughs> yeah, hopefully they won't make a, another two films, so it'll always kind of stick out like a kind of sore thumb uh, on a four-fingered hand. Um, <laughs> the next perfect perfect trilogy in, in you know inverted commas. Um, is uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um, mm. We've kind of talked about this in a previous episode. Um, I, and I kind of, I still don't quite get how people are talking about Return of the King as if it's one of the greatest films of all time. Uh, it seems to be blinded by the Oscars, which were at that point an accumulative acknowledgement of a monumental cinematic achievement. Um, but uh, if you watch them back to back in one go, uh, they do get steadily worse. Those films definitely after kind of like the kind of going into the back end of of number two, uh, where it kind of hits the peak, and then it ju- it just becomes effects, 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 effects. Yeah, I do think you're right, and you know we've talked about this before. The idea that the Oscars and uh, they recognised the third one, even though they kind of felt maybe that the first one was probably the best, and that meant that essentially. It was all. It all ended up being kind of back ended. They all just kind of gave all the awards to that one. It made the most money, and I think it had the most goodwill towards it built over the course of the the previous two films, and that's why it's held in regard as the best. Even though, you know, I think there's probably a stronger case in terms of actual filmmaking for the first two to be considered superior. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, my last example, probably not going to be as controversial. Um, is the Star Wars trilogy, the first mm. trilogy, uh, the only trilogy in my mind, um, which I watched this week, um, the the kind of uh, original, unspecial editioned ones. Um, and it never ceases to amaze me um, that when, definitely when you watch them back to back, 
maybe not all in one go, but like if you watch one on consecutive nights like I have uh, this week, just how bad Return of the Jedi is next to the other two. Like like uh, how different it feels, how um, the characters are, are completely kind of like skewed from their previous incarnations and just how it really feels like it, uh, kind of someone else has made it for a kind of a joke and kind of put it in there and it seems to have got by people and everyone's got like a, a, a you know a sense of nostalgia and a soft spot for return of the jedi i mean i certainly have i used to watch it on repeat as a kid i had on video i kind of nearly wore it out but as an adult you're like seriously this is the what follows empire strikes back yeah it definitely has in terms of the addition of the ewoks it feels a lot more I mean, they're all films that obviously appeal to kids. They're all mm. films that have kind of a very kind of youthful energy to them and that really appeal to kind of to, to young people. And, you know, they have these kind of very elemental, basic stories that can appeal to pretty much anyone. But that's the first one where it really feels like they're pandering to that audience by adding in these cuddly living teddy bears. Um, and, you know, the, the, the whole idea of them having C-3PO as a god, which is such a kind of a hacky idea. That everyone does the idea of, of a characters arriving in a primitive culture and then being accepted as a god, um, then defeating the empire is like such a fucking stupid, um, and and really kind of uh, one of the things that's really interesting about the Star Wars films, which I don't think gets commented on much, is that uh, in the original conception of them, George Lucas said he wanted to make a film about Vietnam mm. because he had. He'd been trying to make Apocalypse Now for a really long time and it just never came together. And he wanted to, and he was, you know, from that countercultural movement, he basically wanted to make one in which uh, the Empire stood in for America and the Rebels stood in for Vietnam, which is an idea that uh, kind of gets buried underneath the special effects and the Jedi stuff, but is kind of at the core of the first film. Um, it's the idea of making people root for the guys who are underprepared and are facing this kind of monolithic force. And then the third one, it kind of really, it's really reductive take on that. It's like, oh yeah, Vietnam's over now mm. and it's been a really long time. So let's just have the Vietnamese be recommend, <laughs> be uh, represented by cuddly teddy bears and not people. So it kind of takes one of the richer uh, subtexts of, of Star Wars and makes it and kind of literalizes it in the worst possible way. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And all, all the all the elements in Return of the Jedi, which I always feel are great, are actually like rubbish. Like it doesn't. It didn't kind of occurred to me when I watched it the other day that like the the the, the plot at the start to rescue Han Solo is, I think perhaps the the most ill conceived uh, plan ever. Like Luke sends the droids as a gift, but to kind of infiltrate Jabba's palace with R2D2 who's got a lightsaber in his head that for reasons that become clear later then. Then Leia turns up and with Chewbacca puts Chewbacca in prison and then uh, attempts to rescue Han and then gets caught because she was just doing it in the palace when everyone's just asleep there and then gets caught. Then they get put in prison and then Luke turns up without his lightsaber, tries to get the uh, gun off the guard, tries to shoot Jabba, falls down the hole, beats the Rancor but it's okay, it's all part of a plan, because when they're about to be dropped in the pit of Sarlacc, R2's got the lightsaber in his head, and it's it's all the plan all along. And I'm just like, this is the worst plan you're planning. You've got a, a group of like crack people, highly trained troops, 
fighters, mercenaries, um, and Jedi knights, and you're going to split up, imprison half of them, and put two of them undercover for no purpose whatsoever, on the hope that Lando will be the person who's supposed to push you into the pit of Sarlacc, and R2-D2 gets a job as a fucking bartender on Jaffa's Palace Barge. <laughs> it's the most ridiculous plan of all time. It takes about like 40 minutes of the film. <laughs> it's just it's just ridiculous. Um, but yeah, it's like, yeah, anyway. Uh, it just goes to show that the writing in the third film is terrible. Um, but yeah, anyway. Um, <laughs> I'm glad I've got that out of my system, because that was it's been bothering me for a few days now. Um, but we talked earlier about um, when I, I kind of get very upset when a, when a director says, well, originally it was part of a trilogy, and uh, then we're kind of treated to what they come up with. One of the worst examples I can think of that is, is the Matrix trilogy. Mm. So obviously, they made the Matrix, and it's kind of a cool movie. Uh, obviously, if I look at it now, I kind of just shudder. Um, uh, but yeah, cool movie, some cool ideas, the very kind of hackneyed ideas and, and cribbed off other people, and, and you know, none of it original. But you know, entertaining, um, done in a very cool, cool way we hadn't seen before, and then they're like, actually, this is you know part of a massive kind of mythology that we've built, and then the sequels follow, and it's uh, laughable, I guess would be how I describe it. Mm. Yeah, I think uh, it kind of has a problem, a similar problem to the the Hobbit films, in that I think the Hobbit trilogy as a whole would probably work a bit better if it was two films. Mm. Um, and I think the Matrix trilogy would work if it was would work better if it was two films if they condensed the entire story of the second and third films into a single entry, and they cut down on a lot of the philosophi- philosophizing, and they kind of just made it a bit more focused and a bit more about the fight for Zion instead of you know just spending more time in the Matrix doing having a neo a neo do things that. Uh, uh, make him far too powerful to be all that interesting as a character. Um, I think it, the, the the big problem with those films is that, in a way, this is kind of similar to the TV show Heroes, mm. is that uh, if you make one character too powerful, then you have to really go out of your way to make it sure that they can't save the day all the time. Um, whether that is trapping a character in feudal Japan or just putting your kind of messianic a godlike character just into a limbo state for half a film <laughs> because you realize yeah if this guy is out there doing his own thing then there's just literally no one who can stop him yeah there's a bit in the second film where i think Carrie Ann Moss gets shot and he puts his hands inside of her and pull and restarts her heart mm. um that is a bit in um and i watched it in the cinema i remember Someone laughed behind me, like like really, really cackled, as if that took them totally by surprise, and that was completely ridiculous. And then someone from the batch went, "Oh, fuck off!" <laughs> and I was just like, "That perfectly sums up how I feel about this film." A, that's hilarious, and I can't believe at any point the Wachowskis were like, "I tell you what, would be an awesome idea." Uh, and then wrote it, and then shot it, and then no one said otherwise. And then the other part of me just thought, do you know what? Actually, yeah, fuck off. That's dreadful. Wasting my time with this poor shit. Mm, yeah, I think that that is a case of what we were talking about earlier in that what you essentially see there is people who had a couple of kind of, they had a film that was kind of overbring with ideas in the first one, and then they kind of, when it came time to make the subsequent ones, someone just kind of comes up to them and says, you can have all of this money and just make, you know, whatever you want. And, you know, maybe they probably didn't want to make another Matrix film. Maybe they wanted to do their own sort of project, but it was so 
enticing to be given that opportunity that they just went for it, whether or not it was a good idea or not. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to talk about good trilogies now. Um, like there are there are a few out there. Um, we talked about Toy Story. Uh, that's brilliant uh, a trilogy. Kind of each one of those is consistently kind of excellent, and the, the kind of each one feels different. Each one kind of uh, I think of differently. Um, and the third one I still can't watch without being reduced to a blubbering wreck. Uh, that film absolutely destroys me every time. Um, uh, the three colors trilogy you mentioned. Uh, I'm going to kind of pull one out of the air. Uh, we kind of hadn't talked about the Dollars trilogy. The uh, the uh, mm. the Sergio Leone ones there. All kind of uh, distinct, all kind of uh, individually excellent and excellent as a whole. Yeah, and they they have a, a they do that whole thing of each one having a greater scale really really well. Mm-hmm. Like the first one is kind of a riff on Yojimbo. It's a really uh, it's a really kind of focused tight story about a guy coming to a town where there's two warring gangs and kind of manipulating them both to destroy each other. And it's really you know it, it feels very very low budget but not in a bad way it just kind of has a rawness to it that's really really cool um second one for a few dollars more they add more characters in and i i think for a few dollars more is my favorite just for the relationship between him and lee van cleef between Mm -hmm. uh, eastwood and lee van cleef where they're both kind of rivals but they both have a real kind of ingrained respect for each other and it's really fun to see them play off of each other and then kind of the good the bad and the ugly is just kind of this huge grand operatic uh story and you can really see uh leone kind of growing as a filmmaker across all three but each of them works as its own separate thing because again they're kind of they're a thematic trilogy and that they're all in the same genre and they have similar characters but they're not like he's not the same guy in all of them they don't tell one long story it's just three really excellent exciting westerns that happen to be made by the same people mm-hmm. yeah uh, any examples you can think of of, uh, of perfect trilogies or, is, or very good trilogies? Uh, one that I'm a big fan of is uh, Ingmar Berman's uh, trilogy. I believe it's called the the Death of, the Death of God trilogy or, or something like that. It's basically one about how the world's terrible. Um, but there, there are three films, Through a Glass Darkly, Winter Light and The Silence, which are all uh, really fascinating meditations on sort of existence. Uh, they're not exactly a laugh riot. Um, but you know, they've, they've got fantastic performances. They've, they've got a wonderful tone. The silence in particular has a kind of a weird, um, Kafkaesque feel to it where these, these two sisters show up in a country, uh, that's kind of, uh, falling apart around the margins and they're, but they're falling apart personally. It's a really great, uh, wonderful, uh, uh, little existential drama. Uh, I think those, those three, uh, are some of my favourite of Bergman films, and I'm a big fan of him in general. Mm. I I kind of got to maybe the age of university thinking that the Back to the Future trilogy was perfect, mm-hmm. but when you revisit number three as you're older, uh, it's really bad. Yeah, I haven't watched the third one in quite a while, but I remember I watched all I got all three of them on dvd years ago and the first one is still kind of just a, a, a like uh, indiana jones it's just a really great kind of fun blockbuster got some really good ideas even though um the older i get the more the ending of it horrifies me just because i think of all the the like just the problem of being dropped into a a reality in which all your memories are different to everyone else's it just seems like a social minefield mm-hmm. um i just and imagine a point at which would've... you you almost remember your mum trying to have sex with you when you went back in the past 
Yeah, I imagine that Marty McFly just grows up to be like a Larry David figure just, be- <laughs> just because he's constantly having to kind of uh, walk through the social minefield of people remembering his whole life differently to him. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like the second one, the first half of the second one is awful because of like the the future stuff is super cheesy, but also just the whole having to uh, dispose of the girlfriend character because they put her in the car at the end of the second of the first one. And then it's like, Oh, we've got to kind of just knock her out (laughs) and just like not having anything for her to do, which the, the, which Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale said that had they known they were going to make more films than the first one, which was such a, a a labor of love that took them seven years to make um, Mm. and constantly got rejected by every studio in Hollywood. Had they known they would make more than the first one, they wouldn't have put her in the car at the end because it was just a huge headache to start the second film, having to try and get rid of her. Mm. Um, But like all of the dark 1985 stuff and all of the clever playing around with the first film at the end of the second one, it's great. It's so inventive. It's so interesting. It's so dark and weird. Yeah. And then you get to kind of like the silly Western stuff in the third one. It's like, it's, it's a lot, it's more consistent than the second one, but it doesn't kind of hit anywhere the same kind of heights. Mm. It's kind of like, oh, there's, they could have a lot of fun here playing with kind of Western themes and, and kind of gags about old Westerns. And there is a few in there. And then after a while, it's just, oh, there's a flying train. Uh, another good trilogy I just thought of is a uh, George A. Romero's dead trilogy. If you ignore the three <laughs> subsequent ones he made. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, if you uh, yeah, if you just look at Night, Dawn, and uh, Day. Day of the Dead, yeah, amazing zombie films really kind of defined an entire subgenre of horror films, and then uh, never really were bettered. I think you've said in the past that zombie films didn't really have anywhere to go after Dawn of the Dead. No, um, I kind of feel the same way about that, but I think that Day is 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 kind of fantastic in its own right. Um, and it's got the opening where there's a crocodile in it, so <laughs> I always like that. So yeah, I think I think that's a really good example of again one where a single director uses the bigger scale of each one, but has a clear point of view and a clear kind of satirical edge that gets expressed over the course of all all of the films that he directed. Mm, yeah, yeah, I've got a, a trilogy that is not really a formal trilogy uh, in the sense that uh, they weren't made one after the other. Um, the uh, Michael Winterbottom, Rob Brydon, Steve Coogan trilogy of uh, Cock and Ball Story and then the two trip films, mm-hmm. um, I think uh, work really, really well together. Those those films that have all surprised me because uh, every single one of them seems to be a joke that should get old after five minutes but somehow don't. Yeah, I think that the uh, the interplay between those two actors who clearly are really good friends in real life and really enjoy each other's company. They've been collaborators for years. Um, I think that they have such, there's such an ease with which they kind of talk to each other and with the way in which they needle each other's insecurities uh, through their, their kind of finely honed comedic personas that uh, each one is just kind of really delightful and really uh, just really pleasurable to watch, but also in in the case of uh, a cock and ball story, there is a real uh, that their kind of narcissism and their own self regard really fits the the weird uh, kind of meta tone of the whole thing. Mm. 
Uh, they kind of very much remind me of like, probably because you just mentioned Larry David, but Larry Davis and Richard Lewis's uh, relationship, which both of them have said that's very much what their relationship is like in real life. Mm-hmm. We see in Kirby Enthusiasm that they're obviously great friends who care deeply for each other, but they just can't stop ripping each other to shreds <laughs> in ways that if you didn't know they were friends, you'd think that they were trying to dismantle each other's psyches. Yeah, and I think that they all, those three films all follow on from each other really well in that each one treats their relationship in a different way. They're at a different place in their career with each one. The first one, they're kind of working on a film together and they're seen as more or less equals. The second one, you know, Steve Coogan feels like his career's in the doldrums and Rob Brydon's in a really good place in his life with his family. And then in a trip to Italy, uh, Coogan's on a TV show, but he's, it may be coming to an end and he's kind of unsure of himself. And, and But Bryden's the one who kind of has self-doubt in, in that one. So there's lots of there's lots of variation within the trilogy, even though they all have a similar tone and you can tell they're all uh, improvised and they're all kind of built on a similar kind of uh, a loving kind of mockery. Mm. Uh, they all feel like distinct and in individual films. Absolutely. So, yeah, that's kind of us on, on trilogies, really, and the problem they're in with. Um, I feel like uh, kind of slayed a few holy cows there and also got a little bit of something about Return of the Jedi off my chest. Yeah, I think uh, if anyone wants to see a, a terrible, terrible list of film trilogies, I mean, really, really fucking awful. Go to uh, Empire and look up their 33 greatest movie trilogies list. Uh, do you know what's at number 15? What? Of the 33 greatest trilogies of all time. This is better than the Bergman one I mentioned. It's better yeah. than uh, even kind of more uh, like uneven ones like the Blade trilogy and only one behind the Die Hard trilogy, Star Wars prequels. Fuck off. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. That's, em- I mean, that's bad. Bad even by Empire standards. Oh, well, let's just not forget that Empire did give Attack of the Clones five stars when it was released. So, um, and I mean, if that's not the most egregious bit of uh, star buying um, I've ever seen, because obviously they're going to give it a good review. And I've got a bone to pick with Empire about this one, because I actually remember I've actually still got the uh, the um, both those the arc, the issue where they review Attack of the Clones and Phantom Menace, and I remember in the Phantom Menace review they give it four stars, and they said whilst it doesn't quite touch the heights of uh, Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back, which is a fucking understatement and a half, <laughs> said it definitely betters Part Three basically, but it's definitely betters Return of the Jedi. And Return of the Jedi, as I've just said in this episode, is not very good, but fuck me, it's better than Phantom Menace. <laughs> it's like it, you know. Jesus Christ. Like, Phantom Menace makes Return of the Jedi look like fucking Magnificent Ambersons or something. It's so awful. And, like, I can't, I just can't conceivably see how the films themselves are improved by being put together as a three. Like, they're just terrible films, you know? Well, I think the only way they, they work is if you kind of say it's one of the more consistent trilogies. <laughs> well, yeah. It's like there's no drop off. <laughs> no and that is a film that is a, a trilogy which starts badly it gets worse and then picks up slightly uh with the third one uh in the in the sense that it's better than the first one but i mean you're talking about you know films that are one star half a star and then maybe one and a half stars if i'm being generous like that's just terrible yeah i can't remember. what's number one on empire's list uh lord of the rings oh god 
Number what's number two? Uh, the uh, original Star Wars trilogy. Right. Okay. Sure. So, like, I don't want to know anymore. Uh, but yeah, yeah. That see, is there any good trilogies in there? Uh, they had the Bergman one in there. They had the Three Colors trilogy. Uh, they had Star uh, Toy Story. So they had did some they have of the, the ones before we had. trilogy. Hmm? Did they have the before films? They did not. No. Well. Wow. Wow. So I don't know. I don't think the list. I don't know if the list had been uh, was made before that happened. But they didn't have the Blade trilogy in there. Right, wow. Which um, is, like, I think the, the first Blade, very cool. Second one, a lot of fun. The third one, just dog shit. <laughs> so it shouldn't mm. really be included. I bet X-Men trilogies in there as well. I bet yeah, that, X-Men trilogies in there. Right, wow. Okay, disregard disregard that. No, that's just terrible. That's that's clickbait, kind of beyond clickbait. Um, but anyway, that's uh, trilogies with us. Um, and we'll be back next week. Uh, we'll be talking about the Oscars, because they're coming. Um, and uh, we don't like them. So it should be interesting. Um, until then it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me and goodbye from me